from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And, and what happened to the rest of their possessions they left behind? You know, it was a scramble. So if you can, you know, as we use empathy here, if you can put yourself in, in those shoes, um, it, it's difficult when you're told, you know, you have a week, uh, you can take one bag. A great deal of uh, federal government uh, photography happening within the camps and there was a special emphasis on ensuring that those photographers were not capturing images of the barbed wire fences surrounding them or the guard towers or mm. things of that nature. C capturing more of the um, aspects of life in the camps that people would, would find more uh, familiar. I'm Sarah Fenske. In the months after Pearl Harbor was attacked, the American government turned on residents of Japanese heritage. About 112,000 men, women, and children were evicted from communities along the West Coast. Approximately 75,000 were American citizens. What happened to them and how is the focus of an exhibit now on display at the Soldiers Memorial Military Museum in downtown St. Louis. It's a traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian, but it also highlights some local connections. And joining us today to tell us about it is Mark Sunlove. He is the Soldiers Memorial Managing Director. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, so this history that this ex exhibition gets into, um, the nightmare began for Japanese Americans with Executive Order 9066. What did that do? Essentially, that executive order allowed military leaders to define areas within their respective commands um, to establish what they called exclusion areas or exclusion zones. And when within those zones, those military commanders were permitted to identify individuals who should be excluded from those areas. So Executive Order 9066 didn't specifically identify Japanese Americans, but it was a kind of a thinly veiled um, acknowledgement that uh, those individuals were no longer accepted, on the, especially on the west coast of the U.S. Hmm. So General DeWitt, who was the commander of the Western Defense Command, uh, quickly initiated a process whereby they they essentially rounded up and began uh, placing it into temporary detention centers and then uh, soon after that into re what they called relocation centers. Uh, any people of Japanese ancestry that lived within that exclusion area. And so those included uh, what they called Issei, which were first-generation immigrants who had come over from Japan, but also their children who were born here in the United States and even their grandchildren who were born here in the United States who had full expectation of, uh, you know, constitutional rights and, and guarantees that we all, you know, assume that we have and that we're protected by. Um, those were all, within a matter of weeks, stripped from those individuals as, it, as they were forced to give up their homes, any businesses that they operated, um, their personal belongings, uh, pets, uh, mm. anything that they owned basically they were permitted to take uh, one bag uh, one piece of luggage uh, to the detention centers and then from there they were uh, moved to the re relocation centers and, and what happened to the rest of their possessions they left behind you know it was a scramble so if you can you know as we use empathy here if you can put yourself in in those shoes um, it's difficult when you're told, you know, you have a week, uh, you can take one bag, you know, to decide what you're going to take, uh, what you're going to leave behind, and then what you're going to do with what you can't. So there were a lot of, you know, 
people who tried to sell things, you know, as quickly and as rapidly as they could at, you know, rock bottom prices just to get rid of stuff that they that they couldn't bring a lot of um, if they did have friends outside of the Japanese American community, which some of them probably did, but not all of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, they might be able to have them uh, take care of their possessions. Um, but just speaking with the uh, uh, Rod Henme, who is the uh, son of Richard Henme, uh, talked about how they had to leave all of their pets, you know, behind. And, you know, some of which were abandoned, some of them, you know, they found homes for. But Boy. and just the, but the psychological trauma of that and, and getting through that uh, is a pretty remarkable story. So we weren't just at war with Japan at that point. There were a ton of German-Americans all over the country, a whole bunch in St. Louis, obviously. Um, what did something equivalent happen with Germans and Italians? Not nearly to that extent. There were uh, German-Americans and Italian Americans and, and uh, foreign nationals, nationals who are identified as posing a potential risk, but those were individuals who were, um, you know, identified had you know military intelligence or the FBI had done some research on those individuals. Um, so there were some um, that were identified and placed into what they called internment camps, which were uh, different than uh, the Japanese, uh, the ten Japanese internment or incarceration camps. Um, but the Japanese Americans were the only people identified exclusively by race mm. um, to be selected um, in that way. So everybody from grandmas down to one-year-old babies were, uh, you know, eligible for placement in, in these camps. Um, mm. So some German Americans and Italian Americans were affected, but not nearly in the way or the racist and systematic way that Japanese Americans were identified. So this show at the Soldiers Memorial Military Museum covers this history, and there's so much in it that we won't have time to talk about today. I want to encourage people to go and check this out. But you also highlight local connections to this national story. Now, as you say, these people were largely um, evicted from the West Coast. So what are some of the local connections to this history? Yeah, and that's one thing that, you know, Missouri Historical Society certainly prides itself on is, is finding the local stories within a larger national story. And so when we embarked upon taking this exhibition on from the Smithsonian, we wanted to find those stories. And so we began working with uh, the Japanese American Citizens League and the Japan American Society to identify individuals uh, in the St. Louis region or community who had been affected. And there's two, you know, world-renowned architects, uh, Richard Henme and Gio Obata, who both have, you know, their families were incarcerated in these camps, but given their age at the time, Richard and, and Gio's age at the time, they were uh, permitted to uh, basically find a university that would take them in and, hmm. and allow them to attend university while their families were, were in the camps. And so Washington University um, did an amazing and wonderful thing and the morally righteous thing, and that is open their doors to Japanese Americans who were looking for places to attend universities. So. Was that unusual that WashU did that? Yes, it was unusual. Yep. And there were universities uh, that were denying, you know, just outright denying Japanese Americans the right to, uh, I guess, matriculate uh, in their universities and, and attend. And so uh, Washington University was unique in that situation um, and, you know, stepped up and did the right thing. So both of them, Richard and Gio uh, Obata, uh, Henme and Obata uh, go on to become world, world-class architects. And you know, Henme uh, designing what we all refer to as the Flying Saucer building now. And uh, That's and right, right here in yeah. almost Midtown Grand yeah. Center. Yeah, exactly. So this kind of great connection um, 
you know, to the local area. And one thing about them, I understand they both ended up serving in the Army as well as going to Wash U? Uh, correct. Uh, Henry, uh, Richard Henry did serve in the Army. I do not believe Gio Obata served, but I could be mistaken on I that. I could also be mistaken yeah, on that. Yeah. Um, but that seems incredible in light right. of their families being forced into internment camps. Was this completely voluntary on their part? Yeah, it was in, in Henry's part. Uh, there were drafts that were happening um, in Loyalty was a uh, an extremely complex question for Japanese Americans at the time because, you know, like I said, these were American citizens and they this was their home and this was their country, this was their land, um, and you know, so there was a lot of uh, disagreement among in amongst the Japanese American community about how to respond and to react to what was happening. And many of them uh, did serve in the military and served with great distinction. In fact, three St. Louisans, uh, Chester, Edward, and Joseph Tanaka, were all born here in St. Louis. So they were not part of uh, the, ex- the exclusion acts that were happening on the West Coast. Uh, they were born here in the mid-19-teens. All three of them uh, served in what was called the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And that unit goes on to serve with incredible distinction. It's mm. it's the most highly decorated unit in U.S. military history for its size and length of service in terms of the number of decorations that it received uh, during the wartime. So mm. it really served with, with high distinction. Um, Chester goes on to become a, kind of the historian for that unit and writes a book called Go for Broke, which is uh, available, um, kind of documenting, documenting their service, especially their, their service in Europe and on the, in Italy. Hmm. So There's another uh, St. Louis, and I want to just briefly talk about here. This is someone who ended up um, moving to St. Louis after being in one of these camps, Janice uh, Koizumi. Correct. And uh, Janice, sto- her story and her family's story is incredibly complex. Um, it's she, uh, Janice um, was married to a man named Kay, and Kay, uh, the, the, those who were interned or incarcerated were given a loyalty test, and two questions on that test re- revolved around, uh, one was, will you forbear any allegiance to the Japanese empire, and will you swear allegiance to the U.S.? government? That was one question. And a second question was, will you serve uh, in the U.S. military? And like I was saying earlier, there was not agreement as to what loyalty meant in the Japanese American community. And K was what they what was termed a no-no uh, in, by answering no to both of those questions. Hmm. Those individuals were kind of isolated and targeted uh, further and removed from whatever camp they were staying in at the time to a camp in Tule Lake, California, where which is kind of a more of a max security type uh, situation. So Kay and his wife Janice uh, go to Tule Lake. Uh, Kay gives birth to their son Gordon um, during this time, and they're up at Tule Lake. They stay there for a while, and then they, you know, had basically given up on the U.S. at that point and attempt to move or do move back to Japan uh, soon after the war. But what they discover when they get to Japan um, is that they're not really welcome there either. Mm. And they're seen as Americans who had just waged, you know, dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. And and so they were kind of people without a country and people without a land. So they, um, they stay there for a few years and then they eventually move back um, to the United States and settle here in St. Louis. Um, and, and kind of live the rest of their lives. But inc- mm. an incredibly complex story with, you know, full of 
very difficult personal decisions that they were making at the time. Yeah, man, just some incredible history here and incredibly sad history here. I mean, I, I imagine for these families, this was just such a setback in their hopes and dreams for life in America. Oh, absolutely. And you look at the EC generation, which were the first uh, to come over from Japan, and they had a you know, they, they worked their tails off, right? And they had established, you know, businesses. They had established, you know, residences for their home. Meanwhile, uh, anti-Asian laws at the time denied them the right or the, even the attempt for citizenship, uh, which meant they couldn't own land and they couldn't do many other things. But through hard work, they had established themselves really in the hopes of their children, the Nisei generation, you know, benefiting from their hard labors. And all of that, you know, was stripped away and had to be rebuilt uh, after after the war and after the camps were closed. Um, mm. Well, if you want to know more about this remarkable history, um, the Soldiers Memorial yeah. Military Museum show opened in July. It's there through October 3rd. You can see mohistory.org for more information. You're also doing some public programming, honing in on, on particular parts of this. There's one event in particular scheduled for next week. This is happening on September 7th. Give us uh, just a highlight of what this is about. Yeah, so Dr. Jasmine Allender, who's a, a dean at uh, UC Santa Cruz, University of California, Santa Cruz, will be joining us virtually. Um, you can find that at mohistory.org slash events. Uh, but Dr. Allender has focused on the use of photography during uh, this historic event. And there was a great deal of uh, federal government uh, photography happening within the camps. And there was a special emphasis on ensuring that those photographers were not capturing images of the barbed wire fences surrounding them or the guard towers or mm. things of that nature, capturing more of the um, aspects of life in the camps that people would, would find more uh, familiar, you know, so as having people eating together and uh, playing together and things like that. Was um, this a form of propaganda? I would argue that it was probably a form of propaganda, but I think I'm going to let Dr. Allender uh, t take the floor on that and give a probably a better explanation than I could. Uh, but yeah, it was... Uh, a very interesting time. And then, of course, that influence, all those photographs are used by historians later and ends up influencing, you know, the historical understanding of the event as well. So mm. it should be a fascinating program and we're, we're looking forward to it. Well, we want to encourage people to check that out. Again, that's at mohistory.org slash events for more information. Uh, this show is called Writing a Wrong, Japanese Americans in World War II. And again, you can catch that all the way up until October 3rd. But don't delay. You might as well go see it now. Uh, Mark Sunlove, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.